ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister. The disastrous military events which have happened in France during the last fortnight have not come to me with any sense of surprise. Indeed, I told the House of Commons, as you may remember, uh, almost exactly a fortnight ago, that the worst possibilities were open. <coughs> and I made it perfectly clear that whatever happened in France would make no difference to the resolve of Britain and the British Empire to fight on. As I then said, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. During the last few days, we have successfully brought off the great majority of the troops we had on the lines of communication in France. And seven-eighths of all the troops we have sent to France since the beginning of the war that is to say about 350,000 out of 400,000 men are safely back in this country. Others are still fighting with the French. We have also brought back a great mass of stores, rifles and munitions of all kinds, which had been accumulated in France during the last nine months. We have therefore in this island today a very large and powerful military force. This force includes all our best-trained <coughs> troops and our finest troops, including scores of thousands of those who have already measured their quality against the Germans and found themselves at no disadvantage. We have under arms at the present time in this island over a quarter, over a million and a quarter men. Behind these, we have the local defence volunteers, numbering half a million, only a portion of whom, however, are yet armed with rifles or other firearms. We have incorporated into our defence forces every man for whom we have a weapon. We expect very large additions to our weapons in the near future. And in preparation for this, we intend forthwith to call up, drill and train further large numbers. Those who are not called up or else are employed upon the vast business of munitions production in all its branches and their ramifications are innumerable. Those who are not so employed or required will serve the country best by remaining at their ordinary work until they receive their summons. We have also over here the Dominion armies. The Canadians have actually landed in France, but have now been safely withdrawn. They were much uh, disappointed, but in perfect order with all their artillery and equipment. And both these very high-class forces from the Dominion will now take part in the defence of the mother country. Lest the account I have given of these large forces 
we have in this country should raise the question, why did they not intervene in the Battle of France? I must make it clear that apart from the division training and organizing at home, only 12 divisions were equipped to fight upon the scale which justified their being sent abroad. And this was fully up to the number which the French had been led to expect would be available at the ninth month of the war. The rest of our forces have a fighting value for home defence, which will, of course, steadily increase with every week that passes. Thus, the invasion of Great Britain would at this time require the transportation across the sea of hostile armies on a very large scale. And after they had been transported, they would have to be continually maintained with all the immense mass of munitions and supplies which are required for continuous battle. As continuous battle it will surely be. Now here is where we come to the Navy. And after all, we have a Navy. Some people are inclined to forget that we have a Navy. For more than 30 years, I've been concerned in discussions about the possibilities of overseas invasion. <coughs> and I took the responsibility on behalf, on behalf of the uh, Admiralty at the beginning of the last war of allowing all the regular troops to be sent out of the country. That was a very serious step to take because our territorials had only just been called up and were quite untrained. Therefore, this island was, for several months, practically denuded of fighting troops. The Admiralty of those days had confidence in their ability to prevent a mass invasion. And you must remember that at that time, the Germans had a magnificent battle fleet, a fleet in the proportion of ten ships of theirs to sixteen of ours and capable of fighting a general engagement any day. Whereas now they have only two heavy ships worth speaking of. The uh, Scharnhorst and the Neissenau. So the situation is very much less critical than the one we lived through in the beginning of the last war. And it seems to me that so far as seaborne invasion on a great scale is concerned, we are far more capable of meeting it today than we were at many periods in the last war, and during the early months of this war also, before our other troops were trained, and while the BEF had proceeded abroad. Now, the Navy have never pretended to be able to prevent raids by bodies of five or ten thousand men flung suddenly across and thrown ashore at several points of the coast some dark night or foggy morning. The efficacy of sea power, and especially under modern conditions, depends upon the invading force being of a large size, so that the Navy have something they can find and meat, and as it were, something they can bite on. Now even five divisions, very lightly equipped, would require 200 to 250 ships, 
And with the modern air reconnaissance and photography, it would not be easy to collect such an armada, marshal it and conduct it across the sea without any powerful naval force to escort it. And there would be very great possibilities, put it mildly, that this armada would be intercepted long before it reached the coast and all the men drowned in the sea, or at the worst, blown to pieces with their equipment while they were trying to land. We have also a great system of minefields, recently strongly reinforced, through which we alone know the channels. If the enemy tries to sweep passages through these minefields, it will be the task of the Navy to destroy the mine sweepers and any other force employed to protect them. There ought to be no difficulty in this, owing to our great superiority at sea. The question is whether there are any new methods by which these solid assurances can be circumvented. Odd as it may seem, some attention has been given to this by the Admiralty, whose prime duty and responsibility it is to destroy any large seaborne expedition before it reaches, or at the moment it reaches, these shores. Uh, it wouldn't be a good thing for me uh, to go into details of this. I might uh, put something in their minds which they haven't thought of, and perhaps they wouldn't uh, make any answer which would put something in our minds that we haven't thought of. All I will say is that untiring vigilance and untiring searching of the mind is being and must be devoted to the subject. Because remember, the enemy is crafty, cunning, and full of novel treacheries and stratagems. There is no dirty trick he will not do. Uh, this brings me to the great question of invasion from the air. <coughs> and of the impending struggle between the British and German air forces. It, it seems quite clear that no invasion on a scale beyond the capacity of our land forces to crush speedily, no invasion on a scale beyond that is likely to take place until our air force has been definitely overpowered. In the meantime, there may be raids by parachute troops and attempted descents by airborne soldiers. We ought to be able to give these gentry a warm reception, both in the air and also if they reach the ground in any condition to continue the discussion. But the great question is, can we break Hitler's air weapons? Now, of course, it is a very great pity that we have not got an air force at least equal to that of the most powerful enemy within reach of our shores. We were promised that five years ago. But we have a very powerful air force which has proved itself far superior in quality, both in men and in many types of machines, to anything we have met so far in the numerous and fierce air battles which have been fought with the Germans. Uh, in France, where we were at a considerable disadvantage and lost a lot of machines on the ground, 
when they were standing around the aerodrome, in France we were accustomed to inflict in the air a loss of two to two and a half to one. In the fighting over Dunkirk, which was a sort of no man's land, we undoubtedly beat the German Air Force and gained the mastery of the local air, inflicting here a loss of three or four to one, day after day. Anyone who looked at the photographs, you must remember them, of the re-embarkation about ten days ago, great photographs in all the papers, showing the masses of troops assembled upon the beaches, forming the ideal target for hours at a time. Anyone who looked at them must realize that this could not have been uh, possible, that the uh, re-embarkation of all these men could never have been achieved unless the enemy had resigned all hope of recovering air superiority at that time and at that place. <clears throat> In the defense of this island, the advantages of the defenders will be much greater than they were in the fighting around Dunkirk. We hope to improve upon the rate of three or four to one, which was realized at Dunkirk, <coughs> and in addition, all injured machines and their crews which get down safely, of which there are a great many in air fighting, surprisingly, quite a large number come to ground without being permanently injured, and quite a large number of the men are come to ground safely. If they fall on friendly soil, they live to fight another day. Whereas all the injured enemy machines and uh, all the men who man them will be uh, total losses so far as the war is concerned. During the great battle in France, we gave very powerful continuous aid to the French army both by fighters and by bombers. But in spite of every kind of pressure, we would never allow the entire metropolitan strength of the Air Force in fighters to be consumed. This decision was painful, but it was also right, because the fortunes of the battle in France could not have been decisively influenced, even if we had thrown in our entire air fighter force. That great battle was lost by the unfortunate strategic opening, by the extraordinary unforeseen power of the armored column, and by the very great German preponderance in numbers. Our fighter air force might easily have been exhausted as a mere incident in that conflict. And then we should have found ourselves at the present time in a serious plight indeed. As it is, I am happy to inform you that our fighter air strength is stronger at the present time relatively to the Germans who have suffered terrible losses than it has ever been. And that consequently we believe ourselves possessed of the capacity to continue the war in the air under better conditions than we have ever experienced before. I look forward confidently to the exploits of our fighter pilots, these splendid men, this brilliant youth, who will have the glory of saving their native land, their island home, 
and all they love from the most deadly of all attacks. There remains, of course, the danger of the bombing attacks, which will certainly be made very soon upon us by the numerous bomber forces of the enemy. It is quite true that their bomber force is superior in numbers to ours. But we have a very large bomber force also, which we shall use to strike at military targets in Germany without intermission. I do not at all underrate the severity of the ordeal which lies before us, but I believe our countrymen will show themselves capable of standing up to it and of carrying on in spite of it, at least as well as any other people in the world. Much will depend on this, and every man and woman will have the chance to show the finest qualities of their race and to render the highest service to their cause. For all of us, whatever our sphere or station, it will be a help to think of the famous lines, he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene. I have thought it right on this occasion to give you some indication of the solid practical grounds upon which we base our inflexible resolve to continue the war. There are a good many people who say, never mind, win or lose. Think or swim, better die than submit to tyranny. And such a tyranny. And I do not dissociate themselves, myself from them. But I can assure you that our professional advisors of the three services, very able men, unitedly advise us that we should carry on the war, that we are able to carry on the war, and that there are good and reasonable hopes of final victory. We have fully informed and consulted all the self-governing dominions, these great communities far beyond the ocean who have been built up on our laws and on our civilization, and who uh, are absolutely free to choose their course, but are absolutely devoted to the ancient motherland and who feel themselves inspired by the same emotions which lead us to stake our all upon duty and honor. We have fully consulted them and I have received from their prime ministers Mr. Mackenzie King of Canada, Mr. Menzies of Australia, Mr. Fraser of New Zealand, and uh, the great General Smuts of South Africa, that wonderful man, with his immense, profound mind, and his eye watching from the distance the whole panorama of European affairs. I received from all these eminent men who all have governments behind them elected on wide franchises, who are all there 
because they represent the will of their people, I've received from them messages couched in the most moving terms, in which they endorse cordially our decision to fight on, and they declare themselves ready to share our fortune and to persevere to the end. That is what we are going to do. We may now ask ourselves, in what way has our position worsened since the beginning of the war? It has been worsened by the fact that the Germans have conquered a large part of the coastline of Western Europe, and many small countries have been overrun by them. This aggravates the possibilities. This aggravates the possibilities of air attack and adds to our naval preoccupations. It in no way diminishes but on the contrary, definitely increases the power of our long-distance blockade. Similarly, the entrance of Italy into the war increases the power of our, of our long-distance blockade. Uh, we stop the worst leak of all by that. We do not know whether military resistance will come to an end in France or not, but should it do so, then, of course, the Germans will be able to concentrate their forces, uh, both military and later on industrial, upon us. But for the reasons I've given you a little earlier in these remarks, they will not find it easy to apply their military forces to this island in great strength. If invasion has become more imminent, as no doubt it has, we, being relieved from the task of maintaining a large army in France, have far stronger and more efficient forces here to meet it. If Hitler can bring under his despotic control the industries of the countries he's conquered, this will add greatly to his already vast armament output. On the other hand, he will not be able to develop them immediately. And we are now assured of immense, continuous, increasing support in supplies and munitions of all kinds from the United States, and especially of aeroplanes and pilots from the Dominions and across the oceans, who will come from regions outside the reach of the enemy bombers. I do not see how any of the new factors, the new adverse factors I have mentioned, can operate to our detriment on the balance before the winter comes. And the winter will impose a strain upon the Nazi regime, with almost all Europe writhing and starving under its cruel heel, which for all their ruthlessness will run them very hard. We must not forget that from the moment that we declared war on September the 3rd, and you heard that first air raid warning within a few minutes of the declaration of war, we must not forget that it was always possible for Germany to turn all our air force upon this country, together with any other devices of invasion and darn tricks and stratagems she had in mind, and uh, 
France could do little or nothing to prevent her doing so. We have therefore lived under this danger all these months. In the meanwhile, however, we've enormously improved our methods of defence and we have learned what we had no right to claim at the beginning, namely that the individual air aircraft and the individual British pilot has a assured and definite superiority. Therefore, in casting up this dread balance sheet and contemplating our dangers with a disillusioned eye, I see great reason for intense exertion and vigilance, but none whatever for panic or despair. During the last four years, now, during the, I should say, during the first four years of the last war, 1914 to 1918, the Allies experienced nothing but disaster and disappointment. That was our constant fare. One blow after another. And terrible losses. And frightful dangers. And everything miscarried. And yet, at the end of those four years, the morale of the Allies was higher than that of the Germans, who had moved from one aggressive triumph to another, and who stood everywhere triumphant invaders of the lands into which they had broken. During that war, we repeatedly asked ourselves this question. How are we going to win? And I do not remember that anyone was ever able to answer it with much precision until at the end, quite suddenly and unexpectedly, our terrible foe collapsed before us. And we were so gorged and glutted with victory that in our folly we threw it all away. We do not know yet what will happen in France or whether the French resistance will be prolonged, both in France and in the French Empire overseas, or whether it will only be prolonged in the French Empire overseas. The French government will be throwing away great opportunities and casting adrift their future if they do not continue the war in accordance with their treaty obligations from which we have not felt able to release them. I dare say you saw in the newspapers this morning the historic declaration in which, at the desire of many Frenchmen and of our own hearts, we have proclaimed our willingness at this darkest hour in French history to conclude a union of common citizenship in this struggle. However matters may go in France, or with the French government, or other French governments, we in this island and in the British Empire will never lose our sense of comradeship with the French people if we are now called upon to endure what they have been suffering. We shall emulate their courage, and if final victory rewards our toils, they shall share again, I, more, 
Freedom shall be restored to all. We abate nothing of our just demands. Not one jot or tittle do we receive. Czechs, Poles, Norwegians, Dutch and Belgians have joined the causes with our own. All these shall be restored. What General Vagan has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour.